Hi, my name is Sam Williams, and welcome to part two of episode number 92 of my 60 Music Podcast, The Millennial Throwback Machine. Hello, so first of all, I'd like to welcome all of you to part two of episode number 92 of my 16 Music Podcast, The Millennial Throwback Machine. I'm Sam Williams, and for those of you who are just now discovering this podcast, either on the Apple Podcast app, or on Stitcher, or on iHeartRadio, or on Google Play Music, or on Spotify, and you're wondering, so what the heck is, I'm going to give you a brief description of what this show is all about. Okay, so I'm Sam Williams, and I'm a 24-year-old song and slash producer, but I'm also a huge sexy music fan slash expert slash turn. Each week with this podcast, I take one song from one artist in the 60s split the show in two parts. First part, I'm to talk about my opinion of the song and why I think it's so good, or why I think it sucks, and do my own personal analysis on the arrangement of the song, which will include the chords, melody, and lyrics. And the second part, I'm to dig deep into the history behind that track. In that part of the show, we talk about who wrote the song, who produced it, what see the song is recorded at, who are the musicians in the track, whether it be the session musicians or the band members themselves, where the, stu- where the studio of the song is recorded at, where that studio is located at, and also the name of the record label the song is released on in the history behind that, where that label is located at, and the peak position of the song made up originally in the Billboard Hot 100 charts when it first came out, and the year and month the song was released in the history behind the artist who recorded the song and the songwriter that wrote the song and the musicians that played it. All that is in the second part of the show. Now, before we move on with this week's episode of the podcast, I wanted to uh, address something. Um, just, just a quick little mention about um, what's been going on in our world right now and what is affecting a lot of different people right now in our society. And um, I know pretty much everyone who's been listening to this podcast knows about this by now, so I'm not going to mention it by name, but I'm sure you definitely know about it. Um, well, I just wanted to say that if you're looking to sort of escape from hearing about it or, you know, at least not wanting to think about it for a while or just, you know, if you're looking for somewhere just to, you know, not have to worry about it for right now, even though it's hard because I know everybody is worried about exactly what's been going on in our world right now. And uh, if you're listening to this podcast and you've been uh, affected by this, I want to say that I'm sorry. That really sucks. I hope things get better for you. Um, cause I know I have listeners from all over the world. Well, all I want all I wanted to say is that if you don't, if you, if you don't want to stay informed because that you're afraid that might freak you out or cause you some stress and anxiety and you're looking to escape, then I would highly suggest you listen to this podcast because if there are any podcasts out there right now that are putting out new episodes, I guarantee you every single one of them, if not all of them, are going to talk about what's been affecting and what's been going on in our world right now. So, but I will say that this will definitely be the only podcast that you're going to listen to that will not talk about what's been going on in our world right now. And I'm doing that because I want you want this podcast to be a place where you can just take your mind off of it for 20 minutes and 30 minutes. And then you can just go about your day and just, 
you know, try not to, but definitely with this podcast, I want you to just think about 60s music history for right now and not worry about what's been happening in our world right now. And uh, so, yeah, so just to keep that in mind and I'm, you know, I'm going to keep doing this podcast like I normally have been doing. I'm not going to stop putting out new episodes because of what's been happening right now in the world, but um, just please enjoy it. And, uh, you know, if you have any thoughts or concerns, please let me know. But other than that, um, definitely enjoy the show. Moving on, let's talk about the history behind last week's artist and song, and that was Rookie Nelson, and the song was called It's Up To You. Now, even though the focus of this podcast is specifically on 60s music, this particular artist actually had history dating back to the late 50s, so because of this, I'm going to talk with you a little bit about what's been, what was going on in popular music in the late 50s, and then I'll fast forward into the 60s a little, late, a little later on into this episode. Okay, so for this particular artist was definitely a product of what was going on in popular music in the late 50s. And this is what was happening in popular music in the late 50s, you know, a little bit before the 60s. Um, basically, what happened was that in the, in the, in the mid to late 50s, there was, popular music was going through a transitional period from, you know, traditional, you know, big band pop stars like Patti Page and Frank Sinatra and Dean Martin. Uh, the early 50s into this brand new genre of music that people were calling rock and roll. And essentially, it was the white DJs relabeling a genre of music created by black musicians called rhythm and blues. And rock and roll was essentially white people's interpretation of that genre of music, essentially. I mean, you know, in the 50s, many, many white artists covered songs originally recorded by black musicians so that way they can get played on uh, top 40 radio um you know this is at a time when you know things were the radio stations are pretty much separated as far as what's black and white songs you know being played in the same am stage top 40 radio station that didn't really happen back then and uh and when that genre of music was taken off so were the rock stars and at the time these rock stars like jerry lee lewis and elvis presley and gene vincent um, were convey, conveyed a very lewd and lascivious image, according to the parents and teenagers. Of uh, the teenagers listening to this kind of music, um, they had these wild dance moves that were borderline sexual, and many parents of these kids deeply disapproved of their kids being associated with what was at the time being called the devil's music. And since there were so many sexual undertones with rock and roll music, I mean, just to give you a good example, um, there is a song that came out. In the late fifties, in actually, in, this was actually in the early fifties, but it still applies. There's a song called "16 Minute Man," and basically, the the lyric of the line it says, "Oh, this will be rocking and rolling all night long like a 60 minute man." I mean, if that <laughs> if that doesn't make you think of other things, you know, besides uh, besides music, then I'm sure you can get the idea for what they're talking about when he said "16 Minute Man." I mean, yeah, that's that's pretty sexual. But anyways, um, with that, with those kind of lyrics, you know, in, in rock and roll songs being really huge at this time, uh, this turned off many of the parents of the kids who were listening to this music. I mean, they definitely didn't want their daughters to be going out or thinking about going out with the likes of guys who were like artists such as Elvis and Gene Vincent and Eddie Cochran because everything about them seemed threatening to their kids that were very much corrupting their youth. I mean, they really didn't like these guys at all. 
I mean, and it's interesting because, you know, when this was going on, you know, record labels executives were trying to find a solution to this problem because even though 90% of the people buying 45s were teenagers, you know, the FCC, which controlled all the big major label AM, uh, you know, AM radio stations, you know, that were playing all the songs, you know, you know, you know, on top 40 radio at the time. Uh, you know, basically the FCC was headed by adults and many of the people who were heads of the FCC at the time did not like rock and roll at all. So and when keeping this in mind, um, you know, these AM stations were controlled by the FCC and uh, basically what they wanted to do is that they wanted to make their teenage listeners happy who were listening to all the, the 90% of their listener base were teenagers by giving them music that they would like, love to listen to, but they also did not want to get taken down by the FCC for, for, for playing rowd and rowd and rowdy rock and roll with sexual undertones. So what did they do to solve this problem? Basically, managers and record record executives who had relationships with these FCC-controlled top 40 radio stations handcrafted these pretty-faced, good-looking young male singers who were either very talented singers but not writers, or sometimes they can handle the double-duty aspect of both singing and performing and writing. But the point about these singers is that they were all squeaky, they all had squeaky clean images with first names such as Frankie and Bobby, and essentially they were marketed as the artists that the parents of the young daughters, who were essentially the record buying public at this time, would let their kids go home with. And uh, you know, and basically the artists I did last week, Ricky Nelson was one of those artists. But there was a bunch of other them too. I mean, there was Frankie Avalon, there was Bobby Rydell, there was Fabian, uh, there was Bobby V. I mean, you know, there was a whole slew of these, you know, good-looking young, you know, what they called teen idols back then. And these were these teen idols came out were all done, were all created essentially to combat, you know, the dirty sort of, you know, really quote unquote inappropriate sort of, uh, you know, um, you know, images that these other rock and rollers were carrying at this time. You know, the these uh these teen idols came out were sort of the, were sort of the anti sort of, uh, anti sort of uh testamine to basically combat all that. But he was an early one because he came into prominence when these other rock and rollers who are essentially, you know, definitely not okay, you know, for the for the for the young for the parents to listen to were extremely popular. But once things changed, you know, once the fifties came to an end and these dirty rock and rollers are dropping off the charts, because that's the other thing that happened is that a lot of these rock and roll stars of the 50s like Little Richard and Jerry Lee Lewis and you know Chuck Berry and uh, you know Elvis Presley I mean they weren't they weren't pretty much having a whole lot of hits or they were no longer having hits by 1959 the very end of the 50s cuz the whole chain of events basically stopped them from having any more hit records and uh, basically and when this happened there definitely became a need for those teen idols to become like huge again for the for them to basically take over for picked up where they left off and you know and when this happened ricky nelson became ex exponentially popular but the main thing i wanted to stress to you about ricky is that he was the first ever teen idol to be essentially born out of tv because his parents were actors while his dad was a big band leader slash singer back in the 40s and in the 50s they had their own tv show called the adventures of ozzy and harriet 
And that was Ozzy and Harriet Nelson, Ricky Nelson's mom and dad. And basically, um, Ricky and his brother were also a part of the show, and they played themselves on TV. And while the other son didn't really have that much musical talent, Ricky, on the other hand, started taking guitar lessons, learning how to play the drums, and was becoming an increasingly competent musician. And when his dad realized this, he became his own business manager and signed him to a record deal with a big jazz label who was looking for young pop stars to join their roster, and that label was Verb Records. And if you think the idea of a young teenager becoming a pop star having a originally star in a scripted TV show sounds familiar to you, then you would know that what happened with Ricky Nelson would later be repeated with groups like the Monkees and the Jonas Brothers in future decades. But in the beginning, Ricky had more of a rockabilly sound, which was at the time a combination of rock and roll and country, which was at the time called hillbilly music, hence the term rockabilly. And his sound was more in keen to what was going on in popular music in the late 50s. But as soon as that be- that sound, sound his sound began to evolve, his dad wanted his son to be like Elvis, have his own band and his own group of backup singers just like the King. So inevitably, he paired up Ricky at first with a group of jazz musicians, but Ricky didn't like them because they weren't really hip to rock and roll, so he formed his first band, and he had freedom to do this because his label deal allowed him a say over which songs he could record as singles and the final artwork for his singles and the musicians and producers and songwriters he could work with. And uh, essentially what happened at this time is that he started working with a, with a guy named Jimmy Haskell who took him in as his main producer. And, you know, and, and, and basically uh, he started producing and arranging Ricky's hits. And his first band consisted of James Kirkland on bass, James Burton on guitar, and Richie Frost on drums. Now in the beginning... Uh, James, they used an upright bass on their records. James Kirkland, you know, played upright bass on all his records, but then he got replaced by Joe Osborne. And Ricky originally recruited James Burton as lead guitar player because he did a tour in the South, specifically in Louisiana, and James was a little guitar player in Louisiana at the time. At the time, he was based in Baton Rouge. He asked James if he'd be interested in joining his band. He said, sure. And James picked up his bags and moved to California to play for Ricky Nelson. You know, so basically, um, you know, uh, you know, uh, James Burden, who was originally from Shreveport, Louisiana, you know, basically did a show with Ricky and, you know, Ricky offered him the job to play guitar for him. And basically, that's what he did. He he basically moved out of Louisiana into California to play with Ricky. And when James went back to Louisiana to visit, he ran to his old buddy, Joe Osborne, who used to play with uh, Joe at the Louisiana Hayride. He asked him if he'd be interested in coming to L.A. to play for Ricky's band with him. And he said, sure. And he also moved out of Louisiana to play with Ricky. And Joe did his first ever sessions in L.A. with Ricky Nelson playing electric bass. But let's backtrack a little bit, because before that even happened, Ricky switched to a label based in Los Angeles called Imperial Records, owned by a guy named Lou Chud. Now, here's the thing about Imperial Records, is that, you know, um, they actually had an upper hand in, you know, rock and roll, because at the time, it was an extremely hot label, as their biggest stars were New Orleans-based artists, such as Lil Richard and Fats Domino. But they were really one of the most important labels that had the strongest connection with New Orleans and Los Angeles, as they had artists on their roster that were located in both cities. 
but essentially they you know imperial records were was extremely popular label at that time you know considering that they really really were in you know had a had were in touch with the whole rock and roll scene that was going on in the late 50s you know i mean they had little richard and fat domino and they had a bunch of other artists too but again this was all coming from new orleans which New Orleans was one of the first places where rock and roll really took off. And when Ricky Nelson switched over into Imperial, his signature sound didn't really become developed until he stumbled upon a songwriter who gave Ricky some of his most memorable, important songs of his career. And his name was Jerry Fuller. Okay, so now before what happened with uh, Ricky Nelson recording songs by Jerry Fuller, um, Ricky had recorded songs by Johnny and Dorsey Burnett. Um, because they had just arrived in Los Angeles from being in Memphis, you know, so essentially that's, they, they actually came, uh, came out to LA, you know, cause they were broken and employed and they decided to re- and Ricky decided to record a bunch of songs by them. And also Ricky also recorded the first number one record ever, you know, by a female songwriter and that was poor little fool by Sharon Sheely. So and he also recorded some songs by Baker Knights, which, which became hits. But really, Ricky's sound wasn't totally developed and totally there until he recorded uh, some hits uh, written by Jerry Fuller. And I'll just just a little background on him, just in case you don't know who he is. Um, Jerry was a bo- Texas-born songwriter who made, he made his way to Los Angeles after he joined a group called The Champs. And he toured with them and then did a show in Los Angeles. And it's then that he decided to stay down there and become an independent songwriter in L.A. And one of the first hit songs he ever wrote was for Ricky Nelson. And it was never originally intended for him to sing, actually. It was actually first pitched to Sam Cooke and his managers and to his manager. And Sam Cooke's manager heard the demo Jerry made with just him and his buddy Glenn Campbell playing guitar and him sing and Glenn Campbell singing backup and a few of his friends banging on a bunch of cardboard boxes. I don't think Gahones were invented yet this time. And J.W. Alexander, who by the way just Sam Cook's manager, heard it, told him he thought it, it sound, the record sounded great, and he said that he would let him know if Sam ever gets around to recording it. And then right after Jerry Fuller left his office, um, you know, basically. Uh, Sam Cooke's manager throws a demo into the wastebasket and little did Jerry know that Ricky's at the time bass player Joe Osborne is in the room right next to where Jerry was playing the demo, a traveling man to Sam Cooke's manager. He heard the demo and was asking him if he could have it so he can give it to Ricky to see if he wanted to record it because he thought the song sounded pretty good. And then Sam Cooke's manager said sure and he pulled the demo out of the wastebasket and gave it to Joe. And Joe played the demo to Ricky, and Ricky fell in love with the song, and then told Joe to call up Jerry and ask ask if he had any more songs uh, that he had written that uh, Ricky could record by the same songwriter who wrote Traveling Man, because Ricky was really curious as to who wrote that song, and then when Joe basically told him it was Jerry, you know, basically that's when he decided to, you know, we wanted to record more songs by this guy. And, you know, Joe did that, and basically what happened was that um, after after Ricky had heard his demo, Traveling Man, um, you know, he asked if uh, if he had any more songs Ricky could record, and Jerry quickly gave Ricky 23 more songs from the record. 
And when they were in the studio recording the song, that's when Ricky's signature sound was developed. And it was then that it was decided that Ricky would be accompanied by a male backup vocal group who at the time were the same backup vocal group who worked with Elvis. And basically, you know, and in every song Ricky would record, the piano and bass would be at the forefront and each song would have a piece of it carved out specifically for a guitar solo done by James Burton. Now, at the time, guitar solos and pop songs were considered anomaly, not commonly done at all. And James Burton was arguably one of the original guitar heroes before Eric Clapton and Jimi Hendrix and just about any guitar god you can think of. He was doing crazy, intricate guitar solos on pop records before anybody else, really. And the solos influenced the likes of such world-renowned guitar players such as Brian May of Queen. And uh, ultimately, Jerry Fuller wrote four top ten hits for Ricky, and the song I'm doing this week was one of those top tens Jerry wrote for Ricky. And also, you know, just to give you an example of how crazy his guitar solos are, um, Ricky Nelson recorded a version of Gene Pitney's Hello, Mary Lou, and that has an insane guitar solo on that record. I mean, that's just, if you listen to that song, it's just crazy. I mean, it's really, really nuts. You know, so, I mean, just to show you that he was really doing these really, you know, out-of-this-world guitar solos before anybody else. And the Jordanaires have been backing up Ricky before that, but this was really when his whole signature sound was developed pretty well once he recorded Traveling Man. And just an FYI, Ricky Nelson's backup singers at the time in the late 50s and a little bit of the early 60s, the Jordanaires, were essentially the same group of backup singers who were backing up Elvis Presley. So essentially, um, the main thing I wanted to stress to you about what was going on with Ricky's career at this point is that uh, Ozzy Nelson, who was, who was Ricky Nelson's dad and business manager, he wanted Ricky to have his own signature unique sound just like Elvis. So he got the same backup singers that, you know, basically, uh, sang backup on a lot of Elvis's hits when he went over to RCA and he got a lead guitar player just like Elvis had Scotty Moore well he essentially got Ricky James Burton and then you know Joe Osborne like Bill Black and you can kind of get the idea I mean basically you know he was trying to craft his own signature sound and just like Elvis and you know there's a lot of you know things the similarities of sounds that Elvis had that Ricky had but anyways um you know, let's talk about the history behind last uh, last week's song, which is up to you. Because it was one of the four top ten hits that R Jerry Fuller wrote for Ricky Nelson. And it was recorded in June of 1963. And unlike, unlike Ricky's first hit that Jerry wrote called Traveling Man, um, it was decided that Ricky Nelson's producer, Jimmy Haskell, didn't, you know... At the time, the Jordanaires were unavailable for any more sessions with Ricky because they were really busy, you know, they were still backing up Elvis at the time. Because uh, you got to keep in mind, at that time, Elvis was still cranking out hits. He was current. He was a popular artist. And the Jordanaires were really busy in Nashville backing up for him. So, you know, the Jordanaires are unavailable to sing on any, any, any more of Ricky's records. So when this happened... Uh, Jimmy Haskell instead decided to use a group of backup singers that consisted of uh, Jerry's friend Glenn Campbell and Dave Burgess and Jerry himself. And the musicians on Is Up To You were uh, Ricky Nelson session regulars Joe Osborne on bass, James Burden on guitar, Glenn Campbell on rhythm guitar, and Alan Harris on piano, and Richie Frost on drums. Now, Richie Frost played drums on 90% of 
Ricky's songs. I mean, he was Ricky's regular drummer. And trust me, I mean, Hal Blaine didn't really play drums on any of Ricky's stuff. It was all Richie Frost. And the two horn players on the record were trumpet players John Ondino and Tony Taran. And uh, a couple things about Ricky's recordings, for those of you who didn't know, this is some pretty interesting behind-the-scenes information. Um, even though a producer has never given credit on any of Ricky's rec- records, 90% of Ricky's hits were produced by Jimmy Haskell and arranged by them, too. And his records were engineered by Bunny Robin, and 90% of his hits were recorded at Master Recorders on Fairfax Avenue in L.A. This was in the earlier part, like in the late 50s. But as soon as, as, soon as the er- 50s started in the 60s, he started recording at United Western Recorders, and that's where he did a lot of, this, a lot of his songs, including this one, It's Up to You, which was recorded on June 13, 1962. And for the Imperial Sessions, basically they were recorded like this. The instrumental tracks are recorded and mixed live while the vocals put on by Ricky and sometimes the Jordanaires whenever they were in town. But a lot of times with, you know, Glenn Campbell, uh, you know, David Burgess and Jerry Fuller, you know, though all the vocals were overdubbed. So they would basically they record the instruments live and then they would, you know, basically record the vocals on different day. And this was all being done in two to three track. But when things, you know, basically, um, you know, that's exactly how things happen. And, you know, Ricky also played acoustic guitar on his records when he overdubbed his vocals on the song. And a Neumann U47 mic was used on Ricky's voice. And Ricky also played acoustic guitar on, on, on the recordings, you know, when he came and overdubbed his vocals. So basically that was the process for how his records were being produced at the time. Now, before I close out this podcast, I want to give you guys a quick recap on what happened with Ricky Nelson after his career peaked and when he was starting to get a career slowdown. Because what happened in 1963 is that Ricky's career was starting to dwindle because he was no longer scoring any big top 10 hits. And realizing this, his dad pretty much forced him to do rock and roll versions of popular standards of the 30s and 40s that his dad used to play when he was working musician with his own big band. And honestly, that kept him... That kept the hit-making streak for Ricky going for quite a while. Um, Because these rock and roll versions of these standards ultimately became hits on the pop charts. There's Fool's Rush In and For You and another song called The Very Thought of You. Um, And this kept him going for quite a while. But things all came crashing down for Ricky once the British invasion happened. Because when that happened, all of a sudden, teen idols or just one good-looking guy were out in groups of good-looking guys who were more than competent musicians and songwriters themselves were in. So when this happened, Ricky was all of a sudden irrelevant and he just couldn't keep up with the times. Really. But... Like most artists whose careers were taking a hit during the onslaught of the British invasion, he did make a comeback. But before that happened, he immersed himself into country music and became part of the California country music culture late 60s and early 70s. And before that, he signed a 20-year deal with Decca Records. He was he got out of his Imperial Records contract and went with Decca, but he didn't really have much success when he was when he was on uh you know Decca at the time, you know, and you know ultimately the show that he was on also got canceled there was a, so there's a lot of changes going on in the mid 60s for Ricky but it was definitely a slow period for his career but he did manage to have one big comeback single in, in 1972 called Garden Party before that he had his first comeback hit She Belongs to Me and it featured a founding member of the Eagles before he even formed the band you know as a member of the backing band uh, Randy Meisner 
And Ricky's comeback single, you know, actually was written out of an experience he had doing a show at the Madison Square Garden in New York City. And that song was called Garden Party. And that became his first top 10 hit records in 1963. And it was his last ever top 40 hit. And really, the song was written over a weird experience that he had when he was at this show, when he was playing all of his older songs, and people didn't people didn't really like it. And there was a bunch of really famous celebrity musicians there. And, you know, and basically, um, you know, he wrote that song out of that experience. And he referenced a lot of those people in the lyrics in the song. It's actually a really good song. I think you should check it out. But if you were wondering exactly what the heck happened to Ricky and why I don't really hear too much about him today. It's mainly because, you know, he actually died tragically in a plane crash while doing a tour in the mid 80s after he had brought a bought a plane that was already having a lot of mechanical issues. Um, basically, what happened was that his plane went down. There was a fire that happened on his plane, and that's how his plane basically went down with all of his uh, basic, uh, you know, all of his touring musicians went down with him. Now, uh, this was when he was doing a tour at the time, and basically, uh, um, one of the musicians who was the last people to see Ricky Nelson alive was Pat Upton, who had his own group called the Spiral Staircase. And uh, essentially, you know, his plane went down and uh, nobody really knows exactly what happened. I mean, there was rumors that, uh, you know, there was, you know, drugs, people were doing drugs in the plane. And that's how the plane caught fire because of the smoke of people doing drugs. But I think it might have been because there was an actual like something like uh, uh, something in the something in the plane burst into flames. And then that's how it went down. I mean, but, you know, before that, you know, um, Ricky had two actually three kids but he had two twin sons and basically they Matthew and Gunnar Nelson and they basically became um you know uh they carried on Ricky Nelson's legacy legacy because they were also musicians themselves and they started playing a lot of Ricky's tunes live and uh, they produced a lot of their own original material as well, and they were pretty popular in the 80s, but they did a pretty good job of uh, keeping his legacy alive even after he tragically died in the plane crash. Um, but yeah, I mean, main thing I want to say about Ricky is that he was very much a product of the late 50s, and you know, and he, is, he had his career peak in the late 50s and early 60s, but again, he was part of this whole thing where teen, the cookie cutter teen idol sort of good boy image that was being brought onto the the record by public in the late fifties and early sixties that was you know ultimately that whole teen made for TV teen idol thing was later repeated with groups like the Monkees and even recently with the Jonas Brothers and just like one little cool little tidbit um, when Traveling Man became a hit in the in the U S uh, Ozzy Nelson who was Ricky Nelson's dad had the idea of basically having Ricky Nelson lip sync the song on TV and then he would basically and then uh, uh, when he was doing that um, he would superimpose images of other countries all around the world while he was playing and playing and singing the song actually lip syncing it and uh, that actually might have been the first time a music video ever happened on a TV show before because before that it was just standard performances there wasn't it wasn't like a music video if you know what I mean that might have been the first time you know that something that ever happened but really i mean that's when the whole like 
promoting music on a scripted TV show really became a thing because, you know, after at the end of every episode of Ozzy and Harriet, Ricky would come out and perform a song, you know, uh, at the end of every show. And that basically gave him great exposure for his songs because millions of people turned that show every week and that's where they heard the songs and then all of a sudden they became hits after that, you know. So that's really the whole... Using a scripted TV show to promote someone's music career, that's it really all got started with Ricky Nelson and the Adventures of Ozzy Harry, and then it later got repeated with the Monkees and the Jonas Brothers later on in different decades. So that concludes part two of episode number 92 of my 16 Music Podcast, The Millennial Throwback Machine. I'm Sam Williams, and if you found out some really interesting facts about uh, Ricky Nelson and, you know, the whole teen idol, late 50s sort of music scene, you know, with uh, with popular music back then, and uh, you never really knew anything about Ricky and, you know, the people that were behind the songs, you can email me at samltwilliicloud.com. Oh, and also one more thing, Jerry Fuller um, later went on to do a bunch of different cool stuff. He later went on to produce and write for Gary Puck and Union Gap. And uh, he also, you know, wrote song wrote songs for Al Wilson, and uh, became a very accomplished producer and writer. And James Burton later went on to play in Elvis Presley's band in the late late sixties, early seventies when he was doing tours in Las Vegas. So, you know, he later went on to do a bunch of stuff, and he later went on to play a bunch of hit records recorded with the Wrecking Crew. So, you know, and Joe Osborne later became a part of that whole Dream Team with Hal Blaine and Larry Nuxtell playing all all those hits. You know, from the association to the mamas and papas, you know, to Johnny Rivers, to almost everybody, and Simon and Garfunkel. So, yeah, so that's just a little thing, a little bit, a little bit tidbit about um, Joe Osborne. But yeah, so um, you can email me at samltwilliicloud.com if you learn anything from listening to this podcast episode, or you can also reach out to me on Instagram, iheartoldies, and check out more of my original music at samwilliamsmusic.net. And yeah, so also, as per usual, you can check out last week's song, and the link to that is in the description of this episode of this podcast, and you can check out um, the links links to my Spotify and YouTube playlist for this podcast, so you'll be able to find all the songs I've talked about on my show so far, including this one, and um, you can you can uh, also, please, I'd really appreciate it um, if you could do that, because then you can kind of get an idea for what kind of music I talk about in my shows, you know, and then basically, um, hopefully that'll give you some ideas for kind of music I, talk, I can talk about next time I show that I haven't yet. And if that does give you any ideas, you can email those to me at samltbullyicloud.com and... You can also um, check out the official Redbubble merchandise store for this podcast. Here you can, you know, basically, um, you know, I have this super cool uh, merch store on there where it's basically I have my own custom logo for this podcast, which is basically uh, the catchphrase I say at the end of every episode, keep on trucking tight, I found the name of my podcast in the bottom, plus a bunch of different cool merch items. I would love it if you can go on there and purchase something now. Uh, they haven't shut down the postal service yet, so you can, as of right now, you can still purchase and they'll ship right to your door, and uh, you can do that. But if you don't want to, that's okay. But I would love it if you can give me some ideas for what kind of, uh, um, you know, what the price of each item in the store, plus what do you think of the logo as well. And yeah, so um, I'm gonna continue to do these podcasts even with what's going on with uh, with the virus and everything, um, but. 
uh, you know, as for interviews, I'm definitely going to be sticking to doing over the phone interviews for right now. Um, you know, I'm not going to be doing any in-person interviews for right now. Maybe that'll change, you know, two or three months from now, but I'm definitely going to be sticking to over phone interviews. I'll definitely, definitely keep you guys posted. Um, you know, when the next, you know, I do have somebody interested right now. We're just working out the schedule as far as, uh, you know, um, when I'm going to conduct the over the phone interview with him. But yeah, so, um, I'm Sam Williams. And thank you guys for listening to this week's episode of my podcast, The Millennial Throwback Machine. Until next week, stay safe and please keep things groovy. Groovy.